Welcome back to eMigCast. If you haven't listened to our last episode, which was the first part of our coverage of pulmonary emboli, be sure to check that out before we get too far into this episode. Dr. Cornegie does an awesome job of running through the differential and diagnosis of PE in a hemodynamically stable patient. We left off and had just gotten a CT pulmonary angiogram on our patient, and the read on the CT came back with multiple subsegmental pulmonary emboli. So now what do we do? One of my main questions for Dr. Cornegie was whether we should be treating such small PEs, as there seems to be a bit of controversy over whether or not we should be treating subsegmental pulmonary emboli. Let's hear what he has to say. Yeah, so I think in the in the kind of the concept of a subsegmental PE, the big question has been with huge advances in our cross-sectional imaging capabilities, we pick up a lot more. And so there was a, a, a study that demonstrated a pretty significant increase in the diagnoses of PEs with kind of this no-miss mentality in the emergency department and the coupled with the capability of this really high-resolution CT cross-sectional imaging. Um, and in that study, they also demonstrated so super high increase in diagnoses of PE, but not a lot of change in mortality. And so the author's conclusion coming out of that was that, oh, these are insignificant or these are clinically not important findings. Mm-hmm. And I can see how that is, is a possibility. And there probably are some sub- sub-segmental PEs that you could argue um, are maybe not as clinically significant when you're looking at the patient. Um, I don't know that we truly know that for sure. I I think that in a lot of radiology literature, the initial reading of a CT that may suggest a PE, there's significant literature to support that once that's looked at by a a, a dedicated chest radiologist, that those are overread frequently as not even being a pulmonary embolism in the first place. So I think that that confounds a little bit of that. Was this truly a PE in the first place? And maybe that's the reason it's not clinically significant because it wasn't really a PE. But I think the way that we prophylact for pulmonary embolism and the, the way that we treat for pulmonary embolism now probably leads into the fact that there's hasn't been a substantial change in the mortality as well because our entire approach to those patients is a little bit different than what it was years ago when we may not have been picking up those diagnoses in the first place. So I guess like when it when the question comes down to are subsegmental pulmonary embolisms important to me I feel like the question I feel like my answer is that I feel like they probably still are and I and I feel that way for a couple of reasons so this 2013 paper out of the Netherlands looked at that question. So they looked at multiple people that had pulmonary embolisms, and they tried to compare a proximal clot versus a more distal clot. And the two kind of primary questions they wanted to know was, was their clinical outcomes different in these two patient populations? And all of these patients ended up getting treated. And so under the pretense of them being treated, were there complications that we are adding complications to these patients by treating them that wouldn't have otherwise been there? And really what they found out was that there were, in their study, which had pretty decent numbers, there was no statistical difference between these patients at all. So their clinical outcomes that they looked at were recurrent pulmonary embolism or recurrent clot and kind of mortality and morbidity. So those two combinations, they, 
regardless if it was a subsegmental PE versus a proximal PE, which could be a submassive, massive PE, those clinical outcomes were the same in both of those groups. So I think this study did a really good job at demonstrating that even in a subsegmental PE population, they're still at risk for a recurrent PE, a recurrent thromboembolic event. They're still at risk for the, these mortality, mortality and morbidities that these other patients that had a more proximal PE had. And so they're still at risk for a pretty high disease burden. And in those two patient populations that were treated, there was no statistical difference between their complications. And so we're treating the risk that these patients potentially have without giving them increased risk of complications. And so that, to me, demonstrates that until there's a study that really shows a bigger difference between these two patient groups, that we probably should still be treating those patients with. With that said, the, the study that I'm talking about that was in the um, Journal of Blood, it did have a, there were some limitations to it, and it did have a pretty short outcome time measurement. They were only looking three months in advance. And so, you know, there could be other complications that we were missing. They could have diverged out a little bit if they followed them up at six months or followed them up at a year. Um, but I just don't know that we have that answer yet. And so I think given the current answers that we do have, if I were to diagnose a patient right now um, in the emergency department with a subsegmental pulmonary embolism, I think that I would probably treat that patient. And I feel like that um, as much of the literature as I have, I, I have reviewed on the topic, I feel like that's what that would support. The other th thought process that I've had around this topic is the idea of later on down the road complications of pulmonary embolism and clot burden. I think in the emergency department, it's really easy for us as physicians to look at that patient right then and there in front of us and think, what do I need to do to treat this patient and to get them out of the department? Either admit them, get them to the ICU, send them home so their primary care doc can take care of them. And I don't know if we think as much long-term burden of disease, like on an epidemiological viewpoint. And the pulmonary, uh, pulmonology literature, you know, suggests that there's a pretty high burden of chronic thromboembolic associated pulmonary hypertension. And I don't know that we think about that a lot when we're acutely working up a patient for pulmonary embolism. We're thinking, is this person going to have a cardiac arrest right in front of me from their pulmonary embolism? Not 20 years down the road, does this person need to be on some infused drip of medication because they're dying from right-sided heart failure due to their pulmonary hypertension? And so I think until we know, like, truly the answer of those two questions, I don't know that literature, to me at least, suggests that we should not treat and or just ignore a subsegmental pulmonary embolism. And so that's, I know it's a very heated, controversial topic, but that's kind of my thoughts around it um, from a literature standpoint. Yeah. It sounds like, from what I'm hearing you say, you would absolutely treat this patient. She's symptomatic. She's got... Subsegmental pulmonary embolism from the from the data that you're referencing, it sounds like you would treat her. I would. I mean, um, I would probably treat her even if she wasn't symptomatic. But given that she's symptomatic, I definitely think that she needs to be treated. Um, you know, she again is hemodynamically stable at this point in time, and so. I don't feel like she needs to be crashed onto ECMO or have like catheter-directed thrombolytics or go to the OR for a thrombectomy at this point in time, but I definitely feel like she needs um, treatment. 
And, you know, it's still, I think, debatable whether or not these patients all need to be admitted to the hospital um, versus can be treated at home. And under what circumstances we make those decisions, I think it's still kind of up in the air. Um, I'm still pretty early on young in my career, and I would probably err on the side of admitting this patient to the hospital um, for anticoagulation. And then how we anticoagulate them, I think, is still, you know, we're getting a little bit more information on that. The conventional way has always been kind of a low molecular weight heparin bridge to warfarin. As everybody knows, there's some complexity to that, injections, followed by orals, followed by this time period that they may be hypercoagulable, followed by days and weeks of going to the lab and having their INR checked. And so the New England Journal you know, published a, a trial that compared that conventional treatment to one of the more novel uh, direct 10A inhibitors, Rivaroxaban, and demonstrated that there was no statistical difference across any of their outcomes in those two groups, including um, bleeding risk, um, which demonstrated that it was a pretty safe uh, concept to think about um, using those two kind of interchangeably. Mm -hmm. And so I think that it's, it's interesting. I'm not certain exactly what our hematologist here would recommend we're typically not getting like a hematology consult on what to start them on uh, but it seems like these direct 10a inhibitors um, would be a great solution to a lot of the complexity that goes along with kind of a low molecular weight heparin bridge to warfarin um, it seems like it's just as safe without any uh, deleterious outcomes mm -hmm. it seems like from the emergency department if you are going to send this patient home it would be easier to just send them home with a prescription for rivaroxaban, and then they take that and follow up with their yeah. primary care, and they can always switch. But um, it, it is very convenient. The newer drugs are very convenient from an emergency standpoint because you don't have to do the bridge and check INRs and yeah. all of that. So There's not, not near as much education that has to go into kind of that um, self-care or home care piece. So. All right, so that wraps it up for a hemodynamically stable patient. Now we're going to move on to our unstable patient. So this patient um, is another 52-year-old woman that's brought in by ambulance from work after a syncopal episode. Her coworkers say that she's been complaining of some mild chest pain throughout the day and suddenly became unresponsive at work. She comes to you with tachycardia, hypotension, and an EKG that shows evidence of right heart strain, which again, we talked about the findings of the EKG findings of right heart strain in the last episode. So if you don't recall this, take a listen again to that part. Kind of what would your next steps be in, in this patient and what, what would clue you into thinking pulmonary embolism? What would your differential be? So um, same differential. I think that essentially all of the things on our last list that cause pleuritic chest pain can in some way, in a much more severe manifestation, um, lead to hypotension and lead to syncope. And so essentially the same differential, but I think that there are a couple of tools we have in the emergency department that can really give us some very quick information on an undifferentiated hypotensive shock patient. And so I would want my, after they gave me the EKG, I would want my bedside ultrasound. Um, and I would want either myself or my resident doing 
essentially a rush exam, a rapid ultrasound and hypotension and shock exam to look for immediate treatable causes of hypotension. Um, so I think it's a very important exam. I think it's probably one of the, I mean, ultrasound has become such a huge piece of our extended physical exam, and that's truly what I feel like ultrasound is. It's, it's, a, it's an extension of our stethoscope. It's an extension of our hands. It allows us to, to look and see and palpate in ways that we never did before. And so, I mean, in a matter of minutes, we could look at this patient's abdomen to look for evidence of intra-abdominal bleeding. We could look at the patient's heart and look for pericardial effusion, look for their contractility, look for evidence of right heart strain on the ultrasound. We could look at their lungs and look for a pneumothorax. Uh, we could look at their descending aorta and look for evidence of an aortic aneurysm that may be slowly hemorrhaging into the retroperitoneal space. Um, we could look at their IVC and look at collapsibility to see if this is maybe hemorrhagic or hypovolemic shock. There's a host of things in a matter of minutes that we can gather information on um, with just that one bedside tool. So that's my first go-to in any patient that presents altered, hypotensive, and they don't have a clue what's going on. If they come in with a sign on them that says, I have a PE, then I would maybe have a little bit more directed approach. But in a truly undifferentiated, hypotensive shock patient, I don't know that there's anything quite as valuable and quite as fast and facile as, um, as the, the ultrasound exam for hypotension. Yeah, if only all of our patients had signs that said what was wrong with them. That would be very handy. It would change, uh, it would change our pay grade a little bit, I think. <laughs> yeah. Let's take a minute here to talk about what we would expect to see on a rush exam if this patient did have a high clot burden from a pulmonary embolism. If you're not familiar with the rush exam, don't worry, but take a minute to look it up. I'll post a link to an overview of the rush exam in our show notes, so take a look at that. So um, the biggest obvious kind of thing you will note is a, um, a, a really big RV. So your right ventricle is the first thing that starts dilating out, and then it's followed pretty quickly by your um, RA. So your right atria will then subsequently dilate because they're all volume overloaded and they're all pressure overloaded. And you could continue to just follow that back. If you put the ultrasound up on the IJ, you're going to see a huge IJ. If you put the um, ultrasound down on the IVC, you're going to see a really big IVC. I mean, that fluid isn't going anywhere but backwards, and so that's where you're finding it. So any of those places that you can look, you're going to see a fairly large um, uh, potential space that's abnormal from what it normally is. Um, looking at the ventricle, looking at the septum is really important because septal bowing is the first clue. Septal flattening, I guess, is the first clue. Normally, you get a little bit of bowing into the right ventricle itself, and as that septum starts to flatten out, that's the first clue that you have that you are compromising your left ventricular um, filling pressures. So you're, you're not filling your ventricle as much as you could because you're physiologically taking up that space by displacing the septum. That's normally not there. So you cannot put more fluid there because something else is in that way. And so that's the first sign that you're really developing right heart strain. And then as that progresses, you can develop the D sign where it's actually bowing into the left ventricle. And so if you're looking on a parasternal short axis of your ultrasound, you'll see what's like a D sign. It's a D shape of your left ventricle, which is very abnormal. 
because the left ventricle is usually kind of the big muscular O on your parasternal short axis. And so as that becomes a D, it's becoming a D because your septum is pushing in and taking over that space. And so that's what's called the D, the D sign or the D shape on the ultrasound. Um, other things that you can catch are, uh, you know, clot, clot in transit. So what you can see is as that PE has made its way or the DVT has made its way more proximal as it goes through the heart. Um, as I was talking about a, a case earlier that a lady came in with clear evidence of a DVT and then about 10 minutes into her stay, all of her pain went away. The color started changing in her leg. Uh, it like physically, I don't know if it was just me, but it looked like her leg was just decompressing. <laughs> and I grabbed the ultrasound and put it on her heart, and I just I, I could see this clot just bobbing around in her right ventricle, and then all of a sudden it disappeared. Oh gosh, that's and terrifying. so clot in transit is another thing that you won't see all the time, but if you see it, pretty high suspicion that you've got a pulmonary embolism on your hand. So those are the biggest things that I would look for in an ultrasound. All right, awesome. Um, all right, so. In, in this patient, I guess one of my big questions is, you know, your first steps in, in, in managing this patient. And um, in going, I, I guess for me, I have a lot of questions about going from, you know, you're, you need to resuscitate this patient. She's hypotensive. She's unstable. And going, when you know that you've adequately resuscitated her and you can now take her to CT. If your suspicion for PE is so high that you, should, you think she needs a CTA, at what point do you feel comfortable taking that patient out of the recess room down the hall to the CT scanner? Yeah, so a hemodynamically unstable pulmonary embolism patient, um, which if we're gonna jump in and talk about her as a PE patient, then, um, as we talked about earlier, the cause of death in these patients is hemodynamic collapse. So her blood pressure is the biggest thing that I'm worried about. And that blood pressure then will spiral. And hypotension leads to less blood flow to the right ventricle, which is already stressed. That right ventricle becomes more ischemic because of less blood flow. It's not gonna have near as much cardiac output from the right ventricle. And that intraseptal dependence of the right ventricle and the left ventricle is just going to lead to worse and worse systemic vascular resistance or systemic blood pressure. And so I keep coming back to the systemic blood pressure. So my first go-to in like resuscitation of this patient would be trying to get her on some sort of vasopressor medication. And my choice is norepinephrine. I like norepi a lot better than kind of anything else in these patients. Um, the conventional teaching when I was initially like learning uh, medicine and particularly like critical care medicine about pulmonary embolism was they're so preload dependent that you have to give these patients fluid you need to give these patients fluid but I think that physiologically that doesn't make a lot of sense to me I think that a lot of patients maybe could take a little bit of fluid bolus challenge but that fluid you're giving them is going into the right side of their heart and you've already demonstrated hopefully by history, high suspicion of PE, ultrasound, pretty suspicious of PE, that that right ventricle, if you're right, that right ventricle is dilated. You're looking at with the ultrasound, you've got a D sign of the bowing of the septum into the left ventricle demonstrating too much fluid in the right ventricle already. 
adding more fluid is over, just going to distend that more. It's just going to create a more ischemic pattern. And so I don't know that fluids is necessarily the answer. I think a little bit of fluids, if you take a look at their IVC and it's collapsed and not plethoric, I think a little bit of fluids is fine, but I'm really quick to start giving pressors to these patients to try to get some sort of systemic, uh, systemic vascular support um, that's going to help their kind of cardiac ischemic picture, um, hopefully helping their cardiac output and so some of these patients you don't get there some of these patients you they're too unstable um, and have arrested in front of you and you give them you know some CPR and some epi and they get a pulse back and then they rest again it's a pretty common phenomenon of these patients kind of going back and forth um, and some sometimes you can't get it and so sometimes if your suspicion is high enough during the arrest state, you just treat them as if you have a pulmonary embolism. I think if I could get, you know, her blood pressure up into a manageable range where she was not syncopizing and talking to me, I would take her to the CT scanner. We're close enough right down the hall for us that we could get down there. I could go with her um, and kind of treat her with a norepinephrine infusion and maybe some push-dose pressors to kind of keep her in a stable place to get the diagnosis because ultimately that would be super helpful. But the fact of the matter is sometimes you can't get it. So my next question has to do with other types of treatments for pulmonary embolism in this acute stage. And so I've heard some theories about using agents that are vasodilators of the pulmonary vasculature in treatment of these acutely unstable patients. And so Dr. Carnegie goes into awesome detail about um, some studies and data that kind of backs this idea. So take a listen. Knowing kind of the physiology or pathophysiology of pulmonary embolism and how that actually leads to hemodynamic instability also plays a lot into, I think, what we initially do with those patients. Um, And getting any sort of vasodilation in the pulmonary vascular bed just by the nature of the disease process alone, makes a lot of physiologic sense to me how that would improve their oxygenation ventilation status and their hemodynamic kind of cardiovascular status. And so um, I, I, I think we've all kind of experienced some of those types of cases that would, would lead to support that kind of treatment. Is there any literature out there that looks at, in the acute setting, treating patients with pulmonary embolism with something to open up their pulmonary vascular bed? Yeah, so this is a really fascinating topic, I think, and it's only really been, it hasn't been looked at um, extensively, like really on the seri- on the on the level of like uh, case reports and some case series. Um, Dr. Jeff Klein, who's a pretty uh, world-renowned expert on pulmonary embolism, I believe is undergoing um, some further trials with the utilization right now of inhaled nitric oxide. And these are, these are interventions used in, in hemodynamically unstable patients. So that's the patient we're talking about right now. We're not talking about the patient that may have a little bit of right-sided chest pain um, and has a little blip on their CT scan and maybe a little tachycardic but is otherwise doing just fine. Like this is the patient who's actively trying to die in front of you that this has been kind of theorized as an intervention for. So um, INO, or inhaled nitric oxide, is a very selective vasodilator to the pulmonary um, 
uh, vasculature. So it's administered um, as inhaled. So you can entrain 40 parts per million into a face mask or if your patient has been intubated actually into an endotracheal tube. Um, and it doesn't dramatically affect systemic vascular resistance. So your blood pressure, your systemic blood pressure, um, theoretically would stay the same or not be affected. But what it does do is really dilates your pulmonary vascular bed. And one of the leading theories about why you get hemodynamic collapse in these patients is a cytokine-mediated kind of pulmonary vascular constriction. So you get a clot that kind of gets lodged in the endothelium of the vessels. You get a big release of thromboxane A2. You get a big release of serotonin. And so not just in that area where the clot is, but throughout the entire pulmonary bed, you get pretty impressive vasoconstriction. And that blood has nowhere else to go but into the right ventricle. The right ventricle dilates. The right ventricle becomes ischemic. If you can't get blood out of the right ventricle, the blood doesn't get to the left ventricle, your cardiac output decreases, your blood pressure decreases, and that's how you get death and pulmonary embolism. It's not because you're hypoxic or can't ventilate. It's because you essentially go into cardiogenic shock, obstructive shock from right-sided ischemic heart failure. Um, and so anything you can do to release that obstruction or that obstructive physiology theoretically could help these patients. And in these case studies and um, case series, all of these patients that got, and they, there wasn't a great protocol, though some of them got 40 parts per million, some of them got a lot more than that, some of them got a lot less than that, some of them had it titrated up in particular ways and titrated down in particular ways, and I don't know that we know the appropriate way to use it right now because it hasn't been studied widely. Um, but all of these patients showed pretty dramatic improvement in their hemodynamic profile and in their oxygenation and ventilation profile. And I think it's because you're, you're releasing, relieving some of that obstructive physiology off of the right ventricle. Yeah, that's really fascinating. So I think there's going to be a lot more to come from uh, selective pulmonary vascular dilation in the treatment of acute decompensated pulmonary embolism. Would you use that in conjunction with systemic pressors? If I if I had it, absolutely. If I had it on hand, um, and uh, you have to really check with your hospitals to see. It's a very expensive intervention, and the fact that it hasn't been studied um, to, to its fullest capacity, it's used pretty heavily in most neonatal ICU units. Um, it's being studied now in the setting of post-cardiac arrest, and so it's definitely making its way out there, um, but it's a pretty expensive intervention and it's probably not available in all places. If it is available, I think in this crashing patient who's trying to die in front of you, it's a perfect intervention because I think that in combination with some uh, norepinephrine is probably going to get you a pretty profound improvement in your cardiac output. Awesome. So I guess we can jump to treatment um, options for this patient. So. Um, you know, we talked about we talked about talked about treating the hemodynamically stable patient, but in this patient that is very unstable. What are what kind of treatment options do you have for her? Yeah. Um, in the acute setting. So, if the clot doesn't get out, then this patient's ultimately going to um, have a very poor outcome. So that should be the thought process. Not, oh, we just need to decrease clot burden and thin the blood out a little bit. You've got to 
get rid of this clot. And so there's a couple of options. A lot of places around the country are actually developing what they call clot teams, and they're multidisciplinary teams with an interventional radiologist, a cardiothoracic or vascular surgeon, um, a MICU player, like, like people that have multiple different modalities and will all assess the patient kind of all at the same time to try to decide what's the best modality for clot retrieval or clot reduction in this patient. And so I guess your options really are are thrombolytics. So you can give peripheral IV thrombolytics, which is probably the fastest way to do, but has some pretty significant risk to it. So as I'm seeing this patient, knowing that if I don't have any other option, that's the fastest option for me, as part of my history with this patient, I'm kind of mentally going through a contraindication checklist for lytics, very similarly to the way that we approach stroke patients to see if they would be um, a candidate for like IV alteplase, if that's the method that we choose to try to get rid of this clot. Other options are like catheter-directed um, intra-arterial thrombolysis, which you know, you can, I, intraventional radiology, you can get a catheter right up next to the clot and just start it directly, much lower doses of lytics just right at the clot itself. Um, surgical thrombectomy is, you know, the other, the other option of opening up the chest, opening up the vessel, and actually removing the clot. And so those are pretty much your main go-to ways of actually getting the clot out. Um, Obviously, I can't do an interventional radiology or a cardiothoracic surgery intervention in the emergency department. And so my main go-to, other than mobilizing the people that are ultimately going to be helping make this decision, are, are trying to get this patient through a checklist. Um, and actually, I have a printed off checklist because I can't remember all of the things that are on that just to make sure that in the heat of the moment, if we are to give this patient um, intravenous thrombolytics, that it's as safe as possible. Other options, which we have not done that I'm aware of, at least in our facility, is the util utilization of VA ECMO mm -hmm. as a bridging therapy, placing a patient onto VA ECMO as a bridging therapy to get them to one of these other interventions. And so if your facility um, that you're training at or if your facility that you're working at has that as a capability, I think that that's always a card that should be in the back pocket because these patients, if they can be put onto the pump fast enough, um, you essentially take over all of the burden from the heart and the lungs, which is what's failing. So Yeah. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of really awesome advances in the ECMO world. Yeah. Yeah, I do. I think that ECMO has a, a lot of potential, and I think that we, um, I think we'll continue to learn more and more about it. I think we, there's some inherent costs to it that are not to be, um, just swept under the carpet. I think patient selection is huge uh, mm -hmm. in deciding if we're going to go on to a VA ECMO. And so um, I still think there's a lot to be learned about it, but I think it's pretty exciting. Sweet. Well, we saved two patients' lives today, so thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, she got admitted to the ICU. Turned out great. Great. She went home yesterday. Great. <laughs> um, was there any other points that you wanted to cover or that you wanted to make? Um, you know, the only other thing that I would say that I do think is, is relatively important in this case, just particularly for those who are interested in emergency medicine, um, there are a couple of emergent presentations that immediate intubation 
uh, can be quite dangerous in. Um, some of them that I'm thinking of is like an aspirin toxicity. And from now on, um, when you think of those, I would put a hemodynamically unstable pulmonary embolism into that basket. These patients, if you give them increased positive pressure by putting them onto a ventilating, if you give them sedation, um, if you take away kind of their natural adrenergic surges that they're trying to keep themselves alive by, um, all of those things can compound that right ventricular kind of failure picture that we have been talking about. And so I do think that, and I have intubated some of these patients, but if you can avoid it, avoid it. And um, if you can't avoid it, I would say really, really think about those pressors early to get them some sort of hemodynamic support before you actually intubate them. Um, so I think that that's just a select thing that uh, around these patients, intubation, if not done thoughtfully, can can lead to their death pretty quickly. So That's a great point. The RSI drugs are not benign in any way, shape, or yeah. form. So when you have a really sick patient, just Awesome. Well, thank you. You are very so welcome. Much for it was a pleasure. Walking through all this with us. Yeah. Um, anytime. Great. All right. So that wraps up part two of our dive into the world of pulmonary embolism. I've included links to the handful of papers that Dr. Carnegie referenced in these episodes in the show notes on our website, as well as an overview of the Rush exam for ultrasound. Be sure to check out these resources if you're still curious. Next time you do see a patient where PE is on the differential, I hope that some of this information is helpful for you. If you have any specific questions or ideas for upcoming episodes, be sure to reach out on our eMedCast Facebook page. A huge thank you to Dr. Carnegie for not only helping us with this episode, but for also being a great resource and faculty mentor for all of eMedCast. We'll be back with another episode next month, so be sure to tune in. Yeah.